I have taught on this before, at least on a couple occasions, and I was I was debating as to what I was going to teach on, and just last night I felt the Lord kind of give me a nudge to go in this direction. So I don't know who this is for, um, but I felt like someone needed to hear this uh, uh, on this particular subject. And I think it is one that is very appropriate, that is uh, necessary, uh, particularly in the body of Christ, the things that we are dealing with. And this Bible study is called Keep Me Back, and it's based on Psalms 19, verses 12 through 13. Uh, Keep Me Back. And we're going to be talking about, well, about God keeping us back from certain things. Um, certain sins and certain things that we, we feel like we have a right or an entitlement to and that we need the Lord to intervene and also dealing with the spirit of entitlement and how also it is just uh, really run amok in our culture and in our society today. Psalm 19 verses 12 through 13 simply says this, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also. From presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. And this is a verse that I pray on a daily basis, because one of the things that I'm kind of getting ahead of myself is that we are in a culture of presumption, that we presume ourselves to be correct. We assume ourselves to be right. And we want that perspective to be reaffirmed and that we often go into echo chambers on social media to reaffirm our own suppositions, our own positions and perspectives on, on, on a wide array of different issues. But the fact of the matter is that we could be wrong. And the thing is we could be acting in sin, living in sin or, or, or thinking sinfully or carnally and not even be aware of it. Which is why this prayer that, that David has written here, he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults, things I may not be aware of. And to keep me, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Verse 14 is a verse that we're all familiar with. I don't have it in the, the PowerPoint. But David goes on to say in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I want to be sure that I'm in right standing with God and not to be presumptuous. We don't want to assume. I'm going to go over some definitions of presumption. And there's two of them I want to focus on for the sake of this Bible study. uh, Presumed definition number one is to take for granted, to assume or suppose to assume as true in the absence of proof to the contrary. And this is something that we really see quite often is that people do not want to satisfy what's called the burden of proof. They believe something to be true even though there is zero evidence to support uh, that particular perspective. And like I said, you see that through social media, especially uh, over the last election cycle that we've been through. All sorts of fake and false stories are being propagated through social media, and people were just gobbling it up hook, line, and sinker because it just reaffirms something they already believed, already thought. Anything that contradicted their perspective on any particular issue, think of any social ill or cultural issue that's going on right now, they would immediately cut it off and reject it because they want to assume this to be true. They want this particular perspective to be true. We assume something to be right. We take for granted. We suppose we assume this to be true, even though there is absence of proof to the contrary. Uh, James 4.13 says, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get, get gain. 
Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Just even us presuming that we're going to live till tomorrow. That's the assumption that we take. We make plans and so on. I'm not saying don't make plans for tomorrow. Make plans for your retirement and don't invest in your 401k. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. But we, we, we have this, uh, this, um, this perspective that everything is going to continue as they always are. We assume this. The scripture says we shouldn't even assume that. For what is our, your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little, little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. We have this perspective, this perspective that everything is just going to presume and continue on as if, as if before. We need to be vigilant and to watch out. The Bible says in Matthew 26, 41, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's asking his disciples to, to watch and to pray with him. He says, watch and pray that you enter not to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is, it is so easy to fall into habits, to get into this, this uh, spirit of, of comfortability. And to assume I'm in, in good standing with God, I'm, I'm doing all right. And we get into the spirit of being lukewarm. And becoming just kind of at ease with God and at ease with our walk with God and not really being vigilant and disciplined and making sure that we are keeping ourselves holy and apart from the things of this world. First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And, and I've, I've experienced this myself, that uh, we get up in the morning, we're not necessarily so passionate, so zealous, so eager in our prayer time, or vigilant in our Bible study time, so disciplined in our fasting. We just go through the motions and go through the routine. We go through the, the habits that we've cultivated over our Christian walk, and there's no gusto, there's no true passion or zeal in performing the duties of God. We forget that we are in a war, and that we are being, we are being hunted, and we are being attacked by a very um, uh, uh, hostile enemy called the devil. There's a homicidal cosmic maniac who desires the complete annihilation and enslavement of the human race. And he has studied our habits over the court, over the eons, over the ages of years. He's familiar with our, with our habits, our choices, our weaknesses, and is always looking and probing for the right opportunity so that he can subvert us and destroy us. We forget that. And so then we get entangled with the affairs of this life. We get entangled with the, with the day-to-day routine. And we forget that we're on a, we're in a war, that we're supposed to be standing our post, securing a weapon, looking out for our enemies who is trying to steal, to kill, and to destroy us. We must be vigilant in these, in these avenues. And that's why it is so imperative of us to truly be aware of um, what our right standing with God. Where are we standing in relation to God? And always inquiring and doing self-examination, self-diagnostics on, our, on ourselves to ensure that we are walking holily and we're walking righteously. Search me. We must remove the presumptions from our heart. The first presumption is that of right standing with God. We presume ourselves to be righteous or that everything is okay spiritually, not considering that there could be a mortal sin lurking within our hearts or actions. We should never accept security without first inquiring of God to affirm those things to be so. Don't just assume that, oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just walk into the gates of heaven and just live my life any old way. No, we should be searching and inquiring to make sure that we are in right standing with God. Psalm 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. In the way everlasting. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. 
Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. How that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. The Bible continues to command us to constantly examine ourselves. Ask God to search us. Practice repentance. It's why Paul the Apostle said that he has to die daily. That he talked about that he has to be careful. That he does, he's not as one that beateth the air. Uh, that he has to keep his body in subjection. Lest by any means he might himself become a castaway. Why? Because it's so easy for this flesh to basically usurp dominion in our lives. It's so easy for us to slip into the sinful nature. And that's why we have to remain vigilant and not just assume, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing the same old thing and just becoming lackadaisical in our, our walk with God. No, we want to keep a fervency. We want to keep a, a zeal and also keep a humility and a spirit of repentance in our heart that we ought to be repenting every day and asking God, show me how I can improve. Show me how I can become a better uh, a Christian. Show me how I can get rid of, get rid of sin in my life or avoid sins in my life. And that's, that's something that requires vigilance. And it's not always easy. It's so easy to become desensitized to how things are or, or the things of God. It's, become, it's so easy to become desensitized to walking in holiness and to walking in righteousness. And that's why we need to always put ourselves on the altar. That we're to become a living sacrifice. Prevention is best. Benjamin Franklin once said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That we could, it's, it means so much, it's so much more valuable to prevent a mistake from happening as opposed to trying to fix the mistake in the first place. And that one of the things that we have to do is to be diligent and make sure that we're maintaining that preventative maintenance in our walk with God. Taking measures to continue to kill the flesh, to crucify the flesh, to die to, uh, to, out to ourselves, to mortify the deeds of the body so that we don't fall into stuff as opposed to then having to um, get into a place of repentance where we're having to try and ask God to forgive us of a sin. Let's do our best to try to avoid the sin altogether. Now don't get me wrong. We're human and we're going to slip on a, on a few banana peels here and there. You're going to make a mistake. You're going you're to have your, your times where you fall into things. That's understandable. That's where God's grace comes into play. But if we want to try and to eliminate opportunities for the enemy to get the best of us as much as possible and avoid sin as much as possible. Oops, something just happened here. All right. <laughs> Give me just a minute. This thing kind of uh, took a dive on me here. Here we go. Okay. Uh, presume definition number two, what it means to, presume, to be presumptuous. To undertake with unwarrantable boldness or to do something without right or permission. To presume that you have the right to do something with a boldness, without any type of trepidation, without any hesitation, or without any consideration of inquiring for permission to take such action. To undertake with unwarrantable boldness or to do something without right, without license, or without permission. And this is the, the presumption I want to talk about primarily in this study, is whenever we think we have the right to do something, we presume that we're in the right. We presume that it's okay for us to take these particular actions. Our main text here again, Psalm 19, verse 13. David says, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous. And I have the Hebrew word there, zed. Presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. The word zed means proud, arrogant, insolent, presumptuous, from the root meaning to boil up or over. 
when our, 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 our ideology, our ideas of right and, and, and uh, righteousness, it boils up, it bubbles over and supersedes the parameters that God has set and enables us to, do, to take whatever action we think is correct or whatever we think to be true. It's an arrogance. It's a pride. He says, David says, keep back all, thy servant also from prideful, from arrogant sins. The sins that I think I have a right to, those are the most dangerous are the sins we think we have a right to. Because they're, they're the sins we know that we're wrong. It was okay, I shouldn't do that. And we have a guilty conscience. But the sins that are the most dangerous are the ones that we think are justifiable. The ones we think we have a right to. We have a license to indulge in. Those are the ones that are dangerous. And those ones in particularly, they are rooted in arrogance and they are rooted in pride. Because we think we have the right to supersede what God has said in his word. And also we have the right to supersede the rights of others. To the, uh, to the harm of others. We don't have a right. The second type of presumption is an act of pride and brazenness. In other words, keep me back from sins that I think I'm entitled to or the ones that I think that I deserve. These are the sins that are the most dangerous because we will resist being rescued from them. You'll resist correction when it comes to these types of sins. You will resist uh, uh, rebuke. You will resist repentance when it comes to these types of sins because you think you're right. And because you think you're right, you, you don't think that you need to change course or repent or abandon these particular sins. That's why they're so dangerous because they're the ones you don't want to repent of. They're the ones you want to cling to. They're the ones you want to fight for. And David is saying, you have to keep me back from these You've got to protect me from these. Otherwise, I'm going to indulge in what he calls the great transgression. The great transgression. Sister Mary had a comment or question on this. I'm about to in just a minute in this, in this story. So since David is the one writing this, let's look at David's life and, and see an example of where he acted in presumption. Uh, where he act, where he presumed to be right in what he was doing when he was just totally off base. So here's here's another here's another example before we get to David. All right, Numbers fifteen twenty nine. Ye shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, in the Hebrew word there is room. Uh, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be. Cut off among his people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall utterly be cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. Now in this very chapter, in this story, is the man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. He went, he was picking up sticks on the Sabbath, on the, Sabbath. The, the elders of Israel caught him, they brought him to the Lord, and they asked, what should be done to this guy? And the Lord said, stone him. Now that seems like a very harsh punishment for just picking up sticks. When you look at, let's say, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel, and God had mercy on him and just gave him a mark and said, you got to wander through, through the land. But this guy was just picking up sticks, and he gets executed. It was considered a capital crime. Why? Because of what it says here early in the chapter. Presumption. He acted presumptuously. He knew that he was not supposed to do any labor or any work. And he thought that he had the right to supersede God's laws. And whenever you start doing that, you are making yourself eligible for God's judgment. You're taking yourself out of the realm of grace and out of God's mercy and putting yourself in the, in the, in the wrath of God. Because you're saying, I'm better than you, God. I think what I'm doing is more righteous than what you have decreed, and I don't need you. I can do my own thing. When you do that, you are thou taking the position 
that I can stand before a holy, righteous God and be found righteous. And that's exactly what this man did. The reason why his punishment was so harsh was because he acted presumptuously. It says again, but the soul that doeth ought presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off among his people. The word there for presumptuously in the Hebrew room means lift, hold up, exalt high, heave, rise up, be lofty, be exalted. The person who exalts himself above God is putting himself in a position of judgment and wrath. Fearing holiness. Linda Ravenhill once said this, it's one of the tragedies of our day that people, when you talk about holiness, they're more afraid of holiness than they are of sinfulness. And this is exactly what we're seeing in our culture. That our culture is more afraid of holiness than they are of their sinfulness. They are more afraid of living right than they are of the consequences of living a sinful, unholy lifestyle. They are more concerned about indulging in their own lusts, in their own desires, in placating their own egos, than they are appeasing a righteous and holy God and living righteously. You look at all the lifestyles that are being propagated and peddled throughout our society, throughout our educational system even, that we are people are indulging in grotesque and egregious sins, things that are an affront and a great offense and are just absolutely wicked before a righteous and holy God. But we have, uh, our society is trying, is legalizing it. Our society is trying to make it normal. Our society is trying to justify it. And that is why that the earth is going to come under God's wrath and his judgment because they are trying to justify themselves before a righteous God. And they fear holiness. They avoid holiness and righteousness in the word of God more than they do their sin, which is going to take them to hell. Romans 1.32 says this, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That they indulge in these sinful lifestyles and they take pleasure when others follow their example. They take pleasure in watching entertainment uh, that, that propagates and showcases these different lifestyles that are there. They take pleasure in that. And the Bible says they know the judgment of God. They know that it's wrong. But they don't care because their ego, their arrogance, their spirit of presumption supersedes any type of feeling of repentance and conviction. So now let's look at the story of David and, and Nabal. I wanted to use an example. Since David's talking about God, keep me back from acting presumptuously. Well, let's look at an example where David acted presumptuously. And there's a lot of things we can extrapolate from this situation. So first, uh, first Samuel chapter 25, verse 2. Let me just give some, some context here before I read this. David is on the run. As you know that Saul is trying to kill David because David has now been anointed to be the next king of Israel. Saul is jealous. He is being influenced by evil spirits and he's trying to kill David. David is now uh, gathered to himself a ragtag band of men, about 600 men. And they are now living off the land. They're just trying, just surviving. They're kind of roaming about and, and trying to, to evade capture from Saul. And as they're doing this, they encounter different individuals in the lands that they're going through. And that's what we're seeing here in 1 Samuel 25 verse 2. 1 Samuel 25 verse 2 says, And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. 
So David asked Nabal for some food for his men who had been protecting his interests. So the thing is, Nabal had all these the sheep and all this stuff and all this cattle. David and his men were protecting Nabal and his assets from invaders uh, and, and uh, nomads that were robbing um, other lands, such as the Philistines. The Philistines were in Taurus, were coming in and robbing and pillaging. And David and his, his band were, were protecting the shepherds of Nabal and protecting his assets, his wealth. For months and months they did this. They were protecting his interests. Now the thing is, Maon, the place where Nabal lived, is, it means place of sin. Place of sin. Nabal means fool, foolish, or senseless. So here's the thing. We have a man, a fool, that is living in the place of sin. And we have David, who's protecting this fool, living in a place of sin. So David had been protecting a fool that was living in sin. Now how many of us have done that? You've gone out of your way to help someone who was not exactly of the greatest reputation. You've gone out of your way to help someone who was foolish, who might have made some bad decisions, made some bad preparation, made some bad uh, choices, and you're helping this fool out of their sin, or helping this fool out of this bad situation. And even though you know they're a snake, you let them bite you anyway. Right? Because as we see here in this story, Nabal, who was a fool, that's what his name means, and he's living in the place of sin, he backstabs David. Even though David has gone his way to help him for months, he has been protecting this man's wealth, protecting his assets, so nothing was stolen. 1 Samuel 25, verse 10. And Nabal, uh, this is when David goes to ask Nabal, Hey, could you give us some food? Our men are hungry and tired. We've been living out here in the wilderness protecting your stuff. Could you guys give us some food here? And the reason why David is asking this, because this was during a particular feast, a festival. It was called the Sheep Festival. And at this time, they would, they'd have a, a, tons of food, and they would, they would share it amongst the shepherds. So they had food that was there. And David's men go to Nabal, and they ask him, Hey, could you please share some of this food with us? We've been taking care of your people. Could you guys, guys you know, help us out? And Nabal answers this, 1 Samuel 25, verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There may, may be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Talking about how David had left Saul. And he says in verse 11, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto, unto men whom I know not whence they be? So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told all those sayings. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode with his stuff. So here's the, here's the, here's the deal here. David has been protecting this fool living in sin. He asked this fool for some help. Keep that in mind now. I'm going to ask a fool for help. For some help. This fool I've been protecting. This fool I've been sacrificing for. This fool I've been taking care of. I'm going to ask this fool for some help. And... Lo and behold, the fool doesn't want to help me. Right? Oh man, can I just borrow 20 bucks and I'll pay it back to you? You don't, you don't, don't see them at all. You know, you go help them move their furniture out of the house, which you need help, they ain't there. Right? You've ever been there? You've gone on your way, you've, you've busted your back over to help somebody out, and then they backstab you, or they leave you hanging. Right? What'd you expect? You're helping a fool living in sin. But this is what happens with David. So, David goes to him and says, hey, could I have a meal? Now I'm not going to help this guy. And so he thinks now, because this guy won't give me and my boys a sandwich, this gives me the right to go murder him. He says, look guys, are he, he ain't giving us no food. Get your swords on, get your horses, let's go get this dude. What? Like, <laughs> how do we go from like not getting a handout to let's slit this dude's throat? You see how quickly that escalated? 
He thought because I'm not getting back after what I've sacrificed, this gives me the right to go and commit murder. But that's what we're seeing in this culture today. We think because of the slightest offense, we can do whatever we want to get back at the person who's offended us. You see this in our culture all the time. You got Karens all over the place going around thinking they can do whatever they want because they've been offended or they think that they have the right to do whatever they want. I was just reading a news story this morning. There was a guy who parked in front of someone's house to go visit the friend. And this woman got upset because they parked in front of the house. It's a public street. They left a note in the person's car that says, we don't want you parking in front of our house. Please move your car. And he's like, this, it's a public street. You know, this, you know, this isn't like a parking spot. This is a public street. And this escalated to where they called the police on this man because he parked in front of her house. What, why? why? Why are we doing this, folks? You know, why, why are we getting so upset and getting so easily offended? Because we have this spirit of entitlement. It went from me not getting a meal and getting upset, and I'm going to kill this. I mean, imagine this. You go to McDonald's, they get your order wrong. And they said, no, they're not going to give you a refund. I can't get no free apple pie. I can't get no free cheeseburger, nothing. No coupons. I'm about to pull out my Uzi. I'm about to blow this dude's head off. That's basically what happened here. <laughs> That's basically what we're seeing here. We went from, you know, just not getting a handout to wanting to commit murder. So Nabal rejected and insulted David. So David takes 400 men to attack Nabal, and David says the following. Look what David says when he is offended by this fool talking crazy to him. 1 Samuel 25, verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain I have kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him. I've been protecting all this stuff. He's lost nothing because of my blood, sweat, and tears, and what my boys have done. And he hath requited me evil for good. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. Now here's the thing that he's saying. I'm not only going to murder him, I'm going to murder every guy that works for him too. Think you might be going over the edge just a little bit, David? I mean, just just a little bit, you know? He didn't feed you, so you're not just going to kill him. You're going to kill everyone associated with him. I mean, he was the first mobster. He was the godfather before there was a godfather. I'll take you, cousin, after everybody. That's basically what happened. He says, God, you know, I swear to God, if there's, there, that there's not going to be a single man left standing by the time I'm through when I get there. Because I did not get the food that I asked for. Presumption. I have a right to have a license to do these things. This picture right here, I think, says it all. I'm offended. I'm so reporting you. But that's what we live in a culture that is designed to be offended. We live in a culture that glorifies victimization, that glorifies me being, um, being I should say, getting some sort of retribution or some sort of uh, compensation for any type of ill. We have our whole culture is basically designed to make us feel like victims, and we are entitled to certain things for nothing. For the slightest offense. I mean, our whole culture is designed, is designed that way. You see this critical race theory stuff that's going forward and this intersectionality stuff that's going forward. That's trying to say that because I'm a part of an oppressed uh, people group, I deserve some sort of compensation. I deserve something. And because if you even look at me crazy or if, I, if, I, if, I don't, if I'm not allowed in this particular function or whatever, then that means you owe me millions of dollars or I have the right to kill you. That's basically what we're seeing. We, have a, we are living in a culture of being offended. The woke mob, I mean, cancel culture. You say anything that's in, in any way 
somewhat disagreeable with the mainstream media, they will cancel you in a minute. There will be protests at your door. They will come for you. What's ironic is we live in a culture that is so easily offended, yet they are the most offensive individuals ever to exist on the planet. Living every type of lifestyle that is wicked and disgusting before a holy God. But yet they are easily offended at the the slightest thing, the slightest correction, the slightest exhortation, the slightest rebuke, the slightest mention of right, true righteousness that derives itself from the word of God is taken as if we just, you know, walked all over their grandmother's grave. I'm so offended. I'm going to report you. I'm offended. So David invested in helping this man and was rewarded with, with rejection and offense. Because of this, he presumed the right to commit murder. His presumption was rooted in his wounded pride. And even so, there are people who presume a license to commit evil because of their hurts and offenses. Your hurts and your offenses. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't have a right to be angry about something or that what someone did was not in fact offensive. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what you do with those offenses. David's response to these insults was completely out of proportion with what was going on. Okay, he didn't want to give you some food. There's no need to go kill everyone in his village. That's what I'm saying. It's not that we aren't that we don't have a right necessarily to be offended sometimes or to be hurt, but it's what we do with those offenses. His reaction and his response was totally out of line. Sister Brownie, to comment on this. Yes, righteous indignation should not cause you to sin, that we should be angry and sin not. And this is rooted out of his pride. Look what the Bible says about this. Proverbs 29, verse 22. An angry man stirreth up strife. A furious man aboundeth in transgression. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. That whenever we get in anger like this, and we start justifying and rationalizing crazy behavior, it's because of pride. We think we have the right, and we think our rights supersedes the other person's rights. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. The reason why we have such a cantankerous and contentious culture and generation is because of pride. It's all because of pride. My rights, my way, and you have to bend over backwards to appease me and do what I say because I'm in the right and you're in the wrong. You're them, and and we're we're us, and you guys are on the wrong side of history. I'm so offended. Psalm 119.165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And the Hebrew word there is milk shall. And I'll get to that just to what it means. Matthew 11.6 says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus talks about not being offended in him. What does that mean to be offended? Milkshaw means stumbling block, a means of stumbling or falling or ruin. Whenever the, When it uses the word offense in Psalm 119, 165, and when we see throughout Scripture the, the word offense, it means to stumble, to fall over, to trip up. That whenever you're in love with God's word, the Bible says that nothing's going to trip you up. Nothing's going to cause you to stumble. Not saying you're not going to get angry about some things, but it's not going to cause you to trip up. And that's what we have today. We have a whole culture that's tripping on stuff. They're stumbling over things. And again, they're stumbling over the Word of God. When the Word of God is rightly divided and and preached with clarity and is convicting of sin, we see folks tripping. We see folks getting angry, wilding out, attacking preachers, maligning uh, and slandering the church and slandering Christ 
Why? Because the word of God is offensive. And that's why the, but the, Jesus says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended, who will not tr- st- uh, stumble or trip over the things that I command in my word, who is willing to love my word despite the inconvenience. First Peter 2, 6 says this, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Jesus, one of the titles of Christ is that he is called the rock of offense. He's the rock of offense because Jesus incarnate is a holy and righteous yet loving God. And the gospel that we preach, it is offensive to those who hear it because the gospel must elucidate and must basically open up and illuminate the fact that we are deprived and we are sinners in desperate and dire need of a savior. That is offensive to this culture. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. We don't want to be told that we have to change. We don't want to be told that we're wicked. We don't want to be told that we have to repent and we have to abandon our sinful lifestyles. We want to be affirmed. We want to be patted on the head. We want our ears to be tickled. We want ourselves to feel good about ourselves. We don't want to be told that we have to align ourselves with a righteous and holy God. The gospel is offensive to those that are disobedient, to those who do not want to believe. But Christ, the Bible says, is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation that we stand on. To those who are holy, to those that are humble, to those that are repentant, Christ is a foundation to stand upon, to live righteously and holy. To those who are disobedient, to those that are living in sin, to those who make excuses and justify their sinful lifestyles, he is a stumbling block from which they will stumble and fall unto judgment itself. We must remove this cancel culture, this spirit of being offended, of being a victim, and instead take responsibility. Take responsibility for the things that are going on. Now, something that Will Smith said that I thought was very profound, he was having a discussion with someone about the difference between fault and responsibility. Fault and responsibility. That uh, this person was angry about something that was another person's fault. And he was, they were saying, like, because it was their fault, it should be their responsibility to fix it. And the thing is, whenever you do that, though, he was saying, you put yourself in victim mode and you are basically losing power. Because if you're waiting for someone else to take responsibility, you're going to be waiting a long time. If you're waiting for someone riding on their white horse to take away all of your pain and all of your stuff, you may be waiting a long time. But instead, he says, take responsibility. So it may not have been your fault that you were abused or were traumatized as a, as a child, but it is your responsibility to, to make the best of your life despite of those things. If you're waiting for your abuser to come and fix everything, you may never get fixed. But when you take responsibility, you take power and you take authority and control over your life. And that's why we have so many people that are living in bondage because they will not take responsibility. I want them to fix it because they broke it. No, I'm going I'm I'm to take responsibility. I can't wait on someone else to fix it. I need to move on with my life and take responsibility. So stop waiting for somebody to make everything right in that sense. This is a, a quote I wanted to read uh, from Fyodor Dostoevsky. He says this, A man who lies to himself and believes his own lies becomes unable to recognize truth either in himself or in anyone else. And he ends up losing respect for himself and for others. When he has no respect for anyone, he can no longer love. 
And in order to divert himself, having no love in him, he yields to his impulses, indulges in the lowest forms of pleasure, and behaves in the end like an animal. And it all comes from lying, lying to others and to yourself. Whenever we, and I'm going to talk about what the lie is. Here's another quote from him. He says this, the man who lies to himself can be more easily offended than anyone. Because as he said before, whenever you're lying to yourself, you can no longer recognize truth. And when you can no longer recognize truth, you can no longer have respect for anyone else. And your truth is basically better than anyone else. And once you lose that love and that respect for others, you then have a right and a license to indulge in any pleasure or in any behavior that you, see, you deem fit. He says, the man who lies to himself can be more easily offended than anyone. Now I want to talk to you today about the deception of being offended. The deception of being offended. Number one. One of the lies that offense, when you're offended, this is one of the lies that offenses will tell you. I am better than those who've offended me or others. Whenever you hear about an injustice, the very first thing you want to do is to judge the person who's, oh, that's so horrible. I would never do that. What a terrible person they are. You immediately say, start making these statements because down deep inside, you think you're better than they are. And whenever you think that you're better than someone else, that then gives you license to treat them as if they are lesser than you. Romans 3, 9 says this, What then, are we better than they? No and no wise, for we have better proved, we have before proved, uh, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. You think that because someone has wronged you, that you are somehow more righteous and better than they. Or perhaps you've witnessed an injustice and saw someone else get wronged, and you think you're better than they. You are not better than they. You are just in need of a Savior, just in need of Christ's forgiveness, as Jeffrey Dahmer or Osama bin Laden. Now, we don't want to hear that because we think, well, I haven't, I haven't sinned as much as they have. Doesn't matter if you've not sinned as much as you have, as they have. You are by nature a sinner and a creature destined to destruction apart from the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We are not better than they are. We get on our soapbox and we get on our, our pedestal because we think we're so righteous. We think we're so good. So now I have a right to treat them like garbage because I'm better than they are. That's pride. That's pride. That's all that is. It all is rooted from pride. I'm better. My rights, my perspective supersedes anyone else's. But you're not. The Bible has concluded it's all under sin. There's none righteous. In this same chapter, in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us deserve hell and damnation. All of us. From the Pope to the bum on the street. All of us deserve to die and to burn in the everlasting fire of hell. All of us do. So get off your soapbox and quit thinking that you're better than they and that you can treat anyone any way, any way you like to just because you've been offended and just because you've been wronged. Number two, therefore, because I've been offended and because I'm better than others, I have the right to do wrong. You, you never have the right to do wrong. It's never right to do wrong. Just because you've been hurt, just because you've been traumatized, just because you've been defended does not give you a license to wrong others or to exact vengeance on those who have wronged you. I have the right to judge because I've been offended or because this person has done something so I'm better than they. I mean, a good example of this, and we'll talk about this later in the lesson, is the story of David and Bathsheba, right? David had committed murder and committed adultery, had stolen another man's wife. And then when Nathan begins to describe a situation exactly like his, the very first thing he does 
is pronounce judgment on the guilty party. This man should restore back fourfold for what he stole. And this man who's done this thing should die. Right? You know the story when, when Nathan says that there was a, a rich man, there was a poor man that had a lamb. And that the rich man stole the poor man's lamb and killed it and gave it to his servants. And David was so outraged, so mad. You know, he's, he's, he's getting Congress and he's getting everyone to legislate to get this guy. Right? That's what he's doing. And then Nathan says, guess what? You're the man. You're the guy. You're the guy. You did the exact same thing you're accusing this guy of doing. The very things we often are judging people for doing, we have done ourselves, if not worse. I have the right to judge. Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now again, people do twist the scripture and say that we're not supposed to judge. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that if you're going to judge, be consistent. That if you're going to hold people to this standard, then guess what? You should be held to the same standard. And if you're going to just say, well, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, and you shouldn't blah, 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 then that means you shouldn't either. Right? I have the right to judge. This is what offenses does to a person. I have the right to hate and not forgive. I have a right to hold this grudge and to hate this person and get vengeance on this person who has offended me. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That the reason why we forgive others is because Christ has forgiven us. We love him because he first loved us. And because he first loved us and forgave us of our sins, even though we desire, we deserve hell, I should pay it forward and forgive those who have wronged me. Who am I to hate someone whom the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood to save? Who am I to judge someone when I am in, I'm in, uh, basically worthy of judgment and condemnation myself? Think about that the next time you're wanting to hate on somebody and you're wanting to throw judgment at somebody. That as the, the same way that, that you're thinking about that someone, someone else is thinking about you. <laughs> I wish this person would die. There's someone else right now that's thinking the same thing about you. God killed this person. Someone's praying that about you right now. Who's God going to listen to? You or the other guy? That's the thing you need to think about. But no, 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 no. We, we don't see ourselves. And that's why the word of God has to be clearly preached to hold the mirror to show us how disgusting we are when it comes to these matters. Keep me back. God, keep me back. If an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure to a humble person, then an ounce of offense is worth a pound of entitlement to the proud person. What stops this spirit of presumptuous sin? In David's case, it was Nabal's wife. Now we're going to kind of dive into this thing. How do I stop myself from being presumptuous? That's why David said, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Then I shall be innocent and upright from the great transgression. The person that stopped David from committing mass murder. Nabal's servants had nothing to do with this uh, insult against David. They're just minding their own business, doing their job. But David was willing to murder innocent people because he was offended. Think about how many people we hurt that had nothing to do with our offense. Because we're, have, we're, we're angry, we're cutting people off in traffic, cussing folk out and getting angry and, and destroying all sorts of breaking people's stuff. What? Because someone offended us and this person had nothing to do with what was going on. All because we were offended. And so Nabal's wife comes to intercept David. She, she hears of that David is on his way to basically kill everybody. First Samuel 25 verse 23. 
And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said upon me, My Lord, upon me let this iniquity be and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I, pr- I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. He's a fool. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young man of my Lord, whom thou descend. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withhold thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies, and they that seek evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. He's saying that God is trying to stop you from making a big mistake. And basically, the Lord has sent me in a way to stop you from making this mistake. What stopped David? Abigail means father or leader of the dance or leader of joy. The father's joy or my father is joy. If you want something to stop you from committing a mistake, doing something out of anger, out of offense, it's the father's joy. The father's joy was sent to stop David from making a terrible mistake out of the root of his offenses. The father's joy or the joy of the Lord intercepts David to stop him from committing sin. What does Abigail, who is the father's joy, say to David? Let's analyze what, what she says. Let's keep reading on further. First Samuel 25, verse 28. Number one, I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil have not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of 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 life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies them shall he sling out as out of, out of the middle of a sling let's analyze what, what Abigail says and I have the, the statements highlighted in yellow number one the father's joy will tell you to forgive the offense when you get into the presence of God and you experience forgiveness for yourself for your own sin and realize what the Lord has done for you and you experience that joy the father's joy will direct you to forgive those who've offended you because you want to please the father and what pleases the father is that we walk in his truth which is to walk in love and to walk in forgiveness the very first thing that Abigail the father's joy told David to do was to forgive the trespasses number two Abigail's the father's joy will remind you of your purpose remember Abigail says fights the battles of the Lord the joy of the Lord will redirect you from your offenses and point you towards your purpose and your destiny what God put you here to do don't get entangled with all these offenses and all these things that are trying to distract you from performing what God has called you to do instead the joy of the Lord will will focus you on on God's plan and on your mission in life don't get entangled with this stuff Said you fight the battles of the Lord. The joy of the Lord, the Father's joy will encourage you to victory and says, look, God is going to empower you to overcome the enemies that you fight. That's what happens when you get into the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord will eradicate the offenses. You look at the story of Joseph. This wasn't in my Bible study. Look at the story of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his own family, his own brothers, sold them into slavery. And he goes from being a slave to being a prisoner when he's falsely accused of rape and rots in prison for years. But God, by his outstretched arm and mighty hand, he elevates him from being a prisoner to becoming the second most powerful person in the land. And with all that power, he did not go back to get revenge on his brothers. And actually, if you read the story of Joseph, when he gets married and he has children, he says, the Lord has caused me to forget my troubles. 
He was so happy in the present time where he was, he was not looking to go back and get revenge on his brothers. He's like, forget y'all. He didn't even go back to go visit his dad. He completely forgot about his past because he was so enveloped in the joy that God had given him right here and right now. The joy of the Lord will eradicate the pain and the trauma of yesterday. The Bible says in Psalm 126 verse 3 that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. That he'll turn your mourning into dancing. When you get into the joy of the Lord and he causes you to forgive. The joy of the Lord will remind you of your, your purpose, convict you, and uh, 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 convict you, and also keep you from your sin. First Samuel twenty five verse thirty, and it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all that He hath spoken concerning thee, and, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offence of heart unto my Lord, either that thou shalt thou hast shed blood causeless, or that that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. He's like, look, you're going to be a king someday. And you want it to be on your record that the king just murdered people just because he didn't get a sandwich? You want to ruin your reputation, your legacy by killing people causelessly? See what the, what the joy of the Lord will do? It will convict you of your sin and show you the right path to go. It is the joy of the Lord that keeps us back from presumptuous sins. David means beloved. He means beloved. David is beloved of God. You, don't you know you're beloved of God, that God loves you, that he's, he loves you so much that he has sent his joy to keep you from making a mistake. When the beloved of God meets the joy of the Lord, the sense of entitlement and offense disappears. When I meet the joy of the Lord, when I, as the beloved of God, meets the joy of the Lord, the sense of entitlement and offense disappears. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to me, to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood, and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back. Remember what David prayed. Keep back also thy servant from presumptuous sins, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet me. Surely there had not been left unto Nabal by by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. So if he had not come here, I would have killed everybody. You stop me from making a terrible mistake. The power of joy. The power of God's joy. Now when Abigail came home from meeting David, she told Nabal the news of what happened the next morning. She's like, you know what? David was coming here to kill you, and I stopped him. I stopped him. And David forgave you for what you just did. First Samuel 25 verse 37, but it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. When, when, when Abigail told him that what, what happened, Nabal died. The thing that David was, was, was so upset about, it died. God took care of it automatically. Joy sets us free. When the father's joy told the source of my offense that I had forgiven it, God killed the source of my offense. God sent his joy to go talk to my offense and say, you have no power over him anymore. And the Lord took care of the offense and the offense died. My sense of entitlement died. My hurt died. My pain died. The trauma died. It was eradicated, annihilated, extricated by the fervency of the joy of the Lord. That once I was lost in sin, but Jesus Christ has rescued me and forgiven me. 
God sent his joy to go talk to my sin and said, you have no power over him anymore. Pain, you have no power over him anymore. Bondage, you have no power over him anymore. Because I have set him free. First Samuel 25, 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil, for the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. I want you to also understand something here. That David married Abigail. He became his wife. The joy of the Lord, that's what Abigail means, the father's joy, was married to a fool. And oftentimes your joy is stuck. It's tied to a foolish mistake. It's tied to a foolish decision. But when you release God's joy and joy begins to have preeminence and talks to that foolish mistake, joy is released so that you can be reunited with it completely and totally. The father's joy had been stuck with a foolish, senseless man. And when God removes the foolishness in our lives and the offenses, we can be married and united with his joy. Thank God for his forgiveness. That when God forgave me my sin and he dealt with my own sense of entitlement and judgment, he set me free from being married to a foolish mistake so that my joy could be married and united with myself. Again, I say, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. This should be the prayer of the church every day. God, keep me from presumptuous sins. Don't allow me to get so wrapped up in my offenses and my hurts that I miss it on the joy that you're trying to give me. Unfortunately, David did not keep his eye on the joy of the Lord, as we know in the story of Bathsheba. He had Abigail as as his wife. And the Bible says that she was beautiful. She was wise. But because David did not keep his eyes on on the joy, he got his eyes on something else. And what happened? He became presumptuous. He presumed that it was okay for him to steal another man's wife and murder the man. He took his eyes off of the joy. He took his eyes off of God and put it on other things and became presumptuous and justified murder. Justified adultery. Justified covering it up and taking another man's wife. That's why it is so important for us to keep our eyes on the joy of the Lord. That's what I preached about um, a few weeks ago. Hebrews 12 verse 2 where it says, Looking unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Despising, uh, endured the cross. Despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of God. That you know we think about all the people who have hurt us and offended us. And just oh I want to slip this person's throat. I wish this person would, would just drop down dead. The scripture says you have not resisted unto blood. That's what it says in Hebrews 12. Jesus, you don't talk about having to resist slitting someone's throat. I mean, <laughs> you got people mocking him and spitting on him and all this other stuff when he is truly the son of God. I saw a post on Facebook that the true test for Christianity is not how much you love Jesus, but how much you love Judas. I'll let you think about that one for a second. The true test of Christianity is not how much you love Jesus, it's how much you love Judas. It's easy to love Jesus. He's perfect. He never does me wrong. He's always there. He loves me unconditionally, right? But it's not so easy to love Judas who's trying to kill me. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus allowed Judas to kiss him and called him friend as he was betraying him. Even though he was a snake, he was a devil. 
Jesus still loved him. And we call ourselves Christians. Oh, I love you, Jesus, more than anything. I worship and adore you, right? That's easy. But can you love Judas? Can you love the snake that's in your backyard? Can you love the person that's betraying, that's backstabbing you? Truly love them and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's some true love right there. And that's the type of love that, that God has for us. This is what stops me from doing stupid stuff. Because when I get angry and think I'm going to get this person, I start thinking about how much Jesus loves me. And how, how many dumb things I've done. I've, I've been a Judas. How many times have we betrayed Jesus? Betrayed, kissed Jesus while sinning against him at the same time. Coming to church and living an ungodly lifestyle at the same time. How many times have we done it and then had the gall to go hate on our brother and sister? Had the gall to try and plan some way of getting back at them and holding a grudge and being bitter? Oh yeah, we're, we're, we're a whole bunch of Judases, but Jesus died for us just the same. God, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let's stand. I'm out of time. Don't lie to yourself. Don't let your offenses lie to you and say, you have the right. You have the right. You have the license to go misbehave. You have the right to get vengeance. You have the right to do wrong. You have the right because you're better than they are. We're not better than they are. Not by a long shot. In the eyes of God, we're all filth. All of us are. Myself included. We're all filth. Apart from the grace and the mercy of God, we are nothing. We have to keep that thought in our minds. If you do that, that will stop you from doing a lot of crazy stuff. And think about this person about to cuss out. Jesus shed his blood for. Jesus died for that person that I'm about to snap on. Jesus died, suffered, and bled, shed his own blood for this person I wanted to get revenge on. Again, how dare I hate someone that my Lord Jesus died for to save? Keep me back. Hold me back. Hold me back. Do whatever you can, Lord. Hold me back. Keep me back from being presumptuous and assuming that I can do whatever I want. This is not a shouting message, but it's one that we need to hear. I don't know who this was for, but you need to stay back from some things. Do not presume. Do not assume. Do not think that you have the right. You have the right to remain silent. <laughs> right to keep your mouth shut. Your right to repent. Your right to put your trust and faith in Jesus as being the true and righteous judge. That's the true mark of a Christian. Is that not only can we love Jesus, but can we love Judas? I hope this has blessed you in some way. Uh, and that we, we get rid of this spirit of victimization, a spirit of entitlement. And again, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that you don't have a right to be upset. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying they don't have a right to be angry. Th- again, Jesus had every right to be angry. I think David did have a right to be angry, considering he spent months protecting this guy. I'm not saying being angry is not a sin. Jesus got angry. There's nothing wrong with being angry. It's what you do with it. What you do with it. Are you going to take that anger and commit sin with it? Or to take that anger and put it in God's hands and, and allow him to handle the situation. That's what David eventually had to do. He had to let go and let God handle it. And that's what we have to do. I know, I know you, want, you want to get in there. You want to defend yourself. You want to protect yourself. You have to let God do it. Give it to God. Pray for those, the Bible says, that despitefully use you. Bless those that curse. See, we, we, we forget about those verses. <laughs> we forget about the, 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 the Beatitudes. And that's, the, that's Jesus' constitutional address to, to Christians, basically, to people that follow him, 
to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to bless those that persecute you. That's what we got to do. God, keep me back. That, let that be your prayer today. And as the scripture says, examine yourself. God, is there something in me that shouldn't be there that I'm not aware of? Search me, oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Am I, am I tripping? Am I stumbling? Am I getting offended and tripping over things? God, show me. Show me so I can change. Come to God with an honest, sincere heart. Allow him to examine you, to do surgery on you, so that he can change you. So we're going to uh, dismiss in prayer. That's the end of the Bible study. Uh, again, like I said, I hope this has blessed you. And, oh, Sister Brown, you had something? Amen. We remember Sister Johnny Harrison who's having some blood pressure trouble. We remember her in prayer and just declare the word of God over her as we dismiss in prayer. As we pray also, take a moment to examine yourself. Um, whenever we take communion, the scripture says, let a man so examine himself. Which exam- that, that examination happens every day. Examine yourself. Check yourself. God, do I have a wrong attitude? You know, am I doing something wrong? Don't always assume that you're the one that's in the right. You could be wrong. I could be wrong. <laughs> I gotta check myself. Continue to do that. Keep continue to put yourself on the altar and mortify the deeds of the body. But we're gonna pray. We're gonna ask for God's blessing on our dismissal. We're gonna intercede for Sister uh, Johnny and pray that God would give us a spirit of repentance, a spirit of humility, as we continue in our walk with God. Heavenly Father, right now we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. Oh God, it is because of your mercies that we are not consumed. That your compassions they fail not. That, God, it is because of your love that we are able to take our next breath. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us, for forgiving us of our trespasses. Oh, God, for not abandoning us, but loving us, oh, Lord Jesus, despite us, and cleansing us and making us, oh, God, conformed unto the image of your dear Son, oh, God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, let the spirit of self-examination, Lord God, grip this church. We rebuke the spirit of presumptuousness. We rebuke the spirit of self-entitlement. We come against the spirit of pride and arrogance. That says that I have the right to indulge in sinful behavior. And we, Lord, we relinquish control. We give all things into your hands in the name of Jesus. And even right now, oh God, I intercede for Sister Johnny. I command her body to come into alignment with the word. Which says that he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. We command you right now in the name of Jesus Christ, Sister Johnny. Heart be regulated. Heart, even right now, blood pressure. Uh, right now, come back to normalcy. Come back to normal functionality. Beat properly. Come into the rhythm that has been assigned to you from birth. Even right now, function properly. I command you in Jesus' name, be healed, be regulated, be whole. Even now, even as I speak, let the spirit of the Almighty God be deployed to her location. And right now, remove all sickness and infirmity and disease from her body. In Jesus' name, be healed right now. In Jesus' name, purge of every disease right now. In the name of Jesus, purge us, O God, of the sin. Purge us of every disease of self-entitlement and pride. And help us to walk in the newness of life, to walk in love, to walk in truth, and to walk in your word. We thank you and bless you and worship you and glorify you. And in Jesus' name, let the church living God say,